Hello, everybody, uh, to East Colfax. Uh, thank you for your flexibility. Thank you for uh, joining us, whether it's on Zoom or whether it's on the live stream. And to Inglewood, uh, it's good to see you all. Unfortunately, this uh, is the world that we're in, so I don't get to see you face to face and hug you or maybe give you a bump or whatever it might be. Um, it's good to be back here in Inglewood for a little bit. Uh, yesterday, Kate and I had the opportunity to hang out with some of our previous foster kids. We try to see them every couple months. And since the pandemic, it's been a little trickier because they are wild children and, and we don't like to have them in our home, uh, as harsh as that might sound. And so the last couple of times we've been able to go to one of the rec centers in Aurora. Um, but since uh, COVID and everything, they've really restricted some of their numbers. So yesterday we were able to get in there and it was myself and then, and then two of the, of the boys and we were the only people in there. It was amazing. It was the three of us. We had this whole rec center to ourselves. We were in the pool, there's slide, the lazy river. It is what I imagine what uber rich people would feel like. Like you'd come over to their house and be like, welcome, here is my bathhouse with a slide because they often would refer to things that aren't actually what they are. I felt at that time in a very elite company. I don't know if that's grammatically correct to say very elite. You might have to ask Sam Seaborn and get back to me. Um, but yesterday was a ton of fun. Throughout Advent, what we've been doing is we have been talking about what does it mean to wait for the Messiah? And we've specifically looked at four different groups throughout Judaism and how they have waited for the Messiah, or did they even wait, or were they content with the way things were? I think that there is a lot about us that we learn when we're forced to wait, when we're forced to be in this place of tension between where we are and where we want to be, or for a lot of people right now, where we were and where we want to be again. And so this week we touch on the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a conservative religiously, but they were wealthy and very wealthy at that. They were willing to compromise much of their values in order to cozy up with Rome. They were hated by common people. They were the wealthy elite, the very elite, you could say, of the first century. They profited from oppression and high tax, taxation, and they were known for their accommodation to Hellenism, to, to the Greek influence, and to Rome. They're known for their wealth, and they were known for their corruption. And they very much benefited from the status quo. They benefited from the way that things were and they didn't want a change. And as defenders of the status quo, they viewed Jesus's ministry with considerable alarm and as a threat. They played a role in his trial and his wrongful execution. We see John the Baptist call them a brood of vipers. We see Jesus cleanse the temple because of the financial corruption that's happening there. In Jesus's time, the Sadducees controlled two primary things. They controlled the temple known as Herod's temple at this time and the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a governing body for both the religious and legal issues of the Jews. The leader of the Sanhedrin was a high priest and was often a Sadducee as well. Their lives and political authority were so intimately bound up with Rome and with temple worship now, once the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the Sadducees ceased to exist. And as I was doing some research this week, the Sadducees actually didn't have a view or a belief about the Messiah. They had no belief in the kingdom of God. 
and in a Messiah that was going to come and going to liberate them and reestablish the people and the land. They actually were quite content in their life without a Messiah. Their fear, as a matter of fact, was that an, an imposter Messiah would come and disrupt their lives of wealth as they've cozied up to Rome with wealth and privilege. They didn't want a Messiah. They were doing just fine. But the Messiah has come. Will you read with me this morning our passage? This is Luke 2, 8 through 14. Wherever you are, will you read it aloud with me? Let us read. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few things are happening in this passage. First is this idea of good news. This was typically reserved for news of the emperor. This was the word of the emperor. This came as a birth of a king. This was gospel, as we might know it, of good news. This gospel was, again, reserved for the powers of Rome. Yet we have these angels here showing up and proclaiming this to the shepherds. The news will bring great joy because it will be for all the people. We'll come back to this in a second. Next, some of the words that we see in here, Savior, Messiah, Lord. Again, these are terms that are reserved for Caesar and for Rome. These are not a way that you would describe a baby born in a manger. And lastly, we see the angels proclaiming glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Again, this was a phrase reserved for the emperor of Rome. And especially at this time on earth, there is peace. At this time, there was what was called the Pax Romana, which was relative peace throughout the known world. Now, on the surface, it was peace, but this was actually peace disguised as violence. Rome was so powerful that they would crush anyone who rose up against them. And so there was peace during this time because there was no opposition, because people bent their will to Rome. It began somewhere around 27 BC and it ends somewhere around AD 180. So when Jesus is born, it's very much in this time of the Pax Romana where Caesar claims peace on earth, but now the angel has appeared and said that Jesus is the one that's going to bring peace. To further highlight this, this is a, a writing that I found that I think is, is really fascinating and it pairs well with this passage that we just read actually. And this is a writing around the time about Caesar Augustus. And this is what it says. Whereas the providence, which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of God Augustus has been for the whole world, the beginning of good news concerning him. 
This is how Rome talked about their emperors. Yet now we have the angels showing up talking about Jesus who was born to a virgin from a place called Nazareth, born into a horse's trough, talking about Jesus this way. This is certainly not what people were used to. Yet to talk about the birth of the Jesus this way is a disruption to the status quo. And it was more than a disruption. It's a clear proclamation that who Jesus is and who Caesar isn't. Now to return to this good news of great joy for all people, the news of Jesus's birth is absolutely good news. It's good news then and it's still good news now. It awakens in us and it certainly disrupts us. It is a change to the status quo that Jesus has brought good news and joy to all people which is another disruption both to Rome and to Judaism and to Sadducees. Rome's affection and their goodness was only reserved for those who bowed to their power. It was certainly not for all people. And similarly for the Jews, they were accustomed to thousands and thousands of years reserving God for only themselves. Yet again, we have the angels proclaiming this joy and this good news that is for all people. When we look at these four themes of Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love. They're more than simply emotions. I believe that they're descriptors of who Jesus is and what he brings to us. He brings hope, he brings peace, and he brings joy. Joy is maybe one of the harder things on this list to cultivate in our own lives. Joy is always the byproduct of something else. Typically, we don't set out in our day and say, I'm gonna find some joy today. Joy is elusive. We can't usually conjure it up, but it's also different than happiness. Happiness can be fleeting and it can easily be taken away. It's often associated with something or someone. And as cheesy as it might sound, someone cannot steal our joy. It's deeply embedded in us and it's formed into who we are. Eugene Peterson says that joy cannot be commanded, purchased, or arranged. And if you're like me, joy has felt particularly challenging this year. We all know what has happened this year between COVID and racial tensions boiling over the summer, a divisive political season, and now the holidays, which are often strained and stressful for people and are going to be more complicated than usual. Joy can be hard to come by. One of the things I learned this week is our brains are actually working against us in this regard as well. Research shows that our brains are designed to react much stronger to negative experiences than to positive ones. Hundreds and thousands of years ago, this was actually helpful because it was a way of survival. It was a way to be skeptical and to put up your guard around the things that were happening around you. But this is something that hasn't necessarily changed us. We now perceive the threat of danger all around us. And so our brains are bent to focus on all that is wrong in the world. And our surrounding culture has made it worse. We are now bombarded, whether it's news or media that constantly preys on our fears and anxiety. And it gives us even more of a confirmation to think, yes, this world is an awful place. The odds are stacked against us being able to experience and cultivate joy in our own life. But now more than ever is a time to disrupt the status quo, a time for defiance. The great Irish philosopher Bono says, joy is an act of defiance. 
right now is that time where we need to defy the things that are going on around us. We need this disruption of the status quo, this disruption of cynicism and fear and anxiety and skepticism that riddles our society and our cities. Joy is not blind optimism or naive happiness. It's not sticking our head in the sand and ignoring what's going on in the world around us. We can simultaneously be joyful and acknowledge the hard and the broken things around us. As Christians, we live in this dynamic tension between sorrow and joy, and we live in this with one another. The thing that I love about joy is that joy is meant to be shared. Think about the angels. They're sharing the good news of Jesus's birth. They're not sharing something that they have done. They're they're sharing about something else that they want to proclaim to everyone. Joy comes to us through Jesus in Advent, through God giving us his son. Joy is not something that we can do or create ourselves. It comes through us, to us like a gift. For Inglewood, think about your Christmas store that you just had. Could you see the joy of the masked faces on people? As they came in and as, as they got their gifts, I imagine you could see how joyful people were. And I would think as you worked and created this amazing opportunity for families that you also got to experience joy through this as well, that you were able to create joy for others. Now, if you know me, you might be thinking at this time, this isn't the guy who's in authority on joy. And you're right. People often don't think that Joe, he is so joyful. They might be thinking, why isn't Reuben up here talking about joy or at least talking loudly? I'm a fairly even keeled person. And if anything, I tend more towards melancholy than I do towards joy. And this situation to be honest with you, I actually feel a little bit like the Sadducees. We don't know for sure, but I suspect that the Sadducees weren't joyful people. When you're rich through exploitation and you've cozied up with an empire, my guess is typically you're not trying to spread joy to the people around you. They, they didn't want anything to change. They were content with the way their life was. They were content with the status quo. They didn't want a Messiah because a Messiah would only be a disruption to them. And to be honest with you, I feel similarly. I think I'm pretty okay on my own. I have a good job. I have an advanced degree. I have an amazing wife and family. We have a a great home. It's easy for me to think, yeah, I don't need Jesus. I'm good the way things are. Because to follow Jesus is to have a Messiah enter into my life. And that is a disruption to me. It calls out my pride and my selfishness. It means that I'm sinful and I need a savior. And to be honest, I don't want to need a savior. I know that this is going to sound crazy to to many of you, but there's a line in the Sleeping at Last song for the Enneagram One. And it says, as if I could earn God's favor given time or at least congratulations. And I know that might sound crazy to anyone who isn't a one, but I can easily think that. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good on my own. And if given the time, I, I think I could reach perfection. I'm not sure that I actually need a Messiah. A Messiah is only going to disrupt the things in my life that make me feel safe and comfortable. And now, as you are all profoundly aware, I have a deep, deep need for Jesus. 
I need his hope. I need his peace. I need his joy and his love. And yet it is still a challenge for me because as, as Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. To follow Jesus takes all of me and it takes all of you. It disrupts our entire life, not just one aspect of our life. And it's hard because it can be filled, filled with uncertainty and it can be confusing. But there is good news that will bring great joy for us. I want to close with some words of a famous hymn that we sing every year at this time. I heard it read this week and it, it struck me as far more powerful than I'm used to hearing it. And this is how we'll close. Joy to the world. The Lord is come, let earth receive her King. Joy to the Lord, world, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains, plains repeat the sounding joy. Joy to the world, let the earth receive her king. Let the angels sing. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the light of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Joy to the world, now we sing. Let earth receive her king. Amen.